0: Most years, the U.S. men's national team holds a training camp in January for MLS-based players. Almost always, the camp is held outside of Los Angeles at the home of the L.A. Galaxy.
1: Before Greg, we probably should have been focusing, you know, more on football.
0: Players and staff typically staying at a luxury hotel near the beach.
1: Yeah, it almost felt a little bit more like a vacation. 2019
2: wasn't most years. That first camp, I mean, he wanted to definitely test the guys, I think mentally, physically, and see who could kind of handle it. I'm Paul Tenorio. And I'm Sam Stasek. And, and it, we, you know, we still talk about it, the, the things that we were doing. This is episode three of from Cuba to Qatar,
3: remaking the U.S. Men's National
4: Team.
3: Following the disappointment in Cuba, the U.S. MNT was going through an extremely strange 15
1: months. It was definitely a weird time because at that moment, we had nothing. There's nothing to play. There's nothing to play for. Tyler Adams. Representing your country was amazing and it was really cool for me, Um, but we weren't playing for a World Cup, we weren't playing for, you know, we don't have the Euros, we don't have anything to to really look forward to. The failure to
3: qualify for the 2018 World Cup was followed by the team sitting in purgatory for more than a year. After Bruce Arena stepped down as manager, Dave Sarikin was appointed as caretaker head coach. Off the field, the search for a permanent head coach was proceeding slowly, far too slowly, in the opinion of many fans. Only a few coaches were reported to have been interviewed by U.S. Soccer for the job. Greg Berhalter, whose brother, Jay, held a powerful position at the Federation at the time, eventually emerged as the leading candidate, with Ernie Stewart, then the general manager of the USMNT, now the sporting director of the entire federation, hiring him as head coach in early December 2018.
4: You know, when you start out playing soccer and then eventually becoming a coach, uh, you never dream that one day you're gonna get the opportunity to lead your country. So I'm extremely proud and honored to have this position. Berhalter changed
0: things up for his first camp as USMNT manager in January 2019. Gone were the fancy digs in LA, replaced by Spartan dorms at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, just outside of San Diego. I sat with Berhalter that first week of January camp in a sparse office in Chula Vista, and he spoke about the challenge he was undertaking and the awkwardness of the transition.
4: It was hard to foster the optimism um, when the direction isn't clear. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I think having an interim coach is very difficult. I think it was very difficult for Dave. He did a great job. But if the direction's not there, the, the public don't have a sense of, okay, where, where are we going? Where's the, where's the program headed? So you have the the failure and then you have this a, a period of, of lack of direction and of leadership. And then it, it puts people in a strange place. And our job is to restore that the faith in the national team. And our job is to, to get the most out of the players and, and give the public a reason to be excited because i can understand it. i mean I, i'm a fan also and and i see um i can certainly understand the point of view of a fan who says man we you know this is you know we're on a bad run with, this group, with the men's national team. And our job is to restore that faith.
3: Berhalter set out to set a competitive tone right from the start of that first camp, which center back Walker Zimmerman, who's become an important member of the team heading into this World Cup, participated
2: in. That first camp, it was honestly a breath of fresh air knowing that we finally did have a head coach. We had a direction that we were going to go in. And I think that camp in particular, I mean, everyone is competing all out because you're trying to impress the new coach there's no ties to the past it's all about okay can you fit into what he wants to do can you impress him in this you know three or four weeks of camp and it was a hard camp i mean he wanted to definitely test the guys i think mentally physically and see who could kind of handle it and and it we, you know we still talk about it the the things that we were doing there within the, the two days two field sessions a day and some of the things that he had us doing out there were were pretty tough so i think it was a great great time for us as competitors to kind of weed out Uh, guys who who had what it it took, uh, have what it takes, I think he kind of found a few answers on that first camp. Burhalter
0: may indeed have found some players in that camp that he would later feel confident leaning on in Zimmerman, center back Aaron Long, defender Reggie Cannon, and midfielder Christian Roldan. But for the most part, the player pool was in a transitory state. The generation of players that led the U.S. at the 2010 and 2014 World Cup and failed to qualify for the 2018 tournament was mostly out. Players like Clint Dempsey, Tim Howard, Demarcus Beasley, and Jeff Cameron were all pretty much done internationally in the wake of CUVA. There weren't many good options when it came to players in their prime. The generation born from 1990 to 98 was mostly disappointing. But the players who looked set to play significant roles at this World Cup had mostly not yet emerged. They were either too young or not yet advanced enough in their careers. Some of them were still playing for the youth teams in their professional setups. As such, Greg Berhalter's initial rosters were a weird mishmash of players, aging veterans like Michael Bradley, youngsters like Polisic and Weston McKinney, and a bunch of guys in between who were basically just filling seats until more talented prospects matured enough to join the full national team.
4: There was a process of like what guys are valuable in in this short term that can help help interpret or help translate what it means to be a US men's national team player to some of our younger guys. I think that's really important.
3: Their first real test was in the 2019 Gold Cup. It was kind of bleak. The team actually looked miserable in pre-tournament-friendly losses against Jamaica and Venezuela. I actually wrote a column at that time, saying that it was the worst the player pool had looked in the modern history of the national team, at least in that particular moment. On the field, Burhalter was committed to playing the same possession-heavy system that he had used with success in Columbus, but he didn't really have the players with the national team to pull it off. The U.S. made a pretty unconvincing run to the final against Mexico using the style. It was kind of tough sledding the whole way there. Once they made it to the title game in Chicago, they switched to a more pragmatic approach, but they couldn't beat their arch rivals squandering some good chances and losing 1-0 against Mexico at Soldier Field. For Burhalter, the match was a lesson in maturity or lack thereof.
4: In the Gold Cup final, we learned that we weren't ready to win that tournament. We just, from a mental standpoint, we couldn't get over beating Mexico mentally, I think, because when you look at the game, we should have won the game, but we weren't there. Like it was, we weren't able to finish the, the really clear chances that we had. Um, you know, we gave up a um, a goal. We ended up losing 1-0. So, I think it was good for the group to just for us to see okay this is where we're at right now um this is the basically the starting point that was our first official competition and that was our starting point to say okay we're right here you know we're right below mexico and it was a good experience for us their next time out against mexico wasn't so
3: nice the u.s hosted el tree in a friendly at metlife stadium in new jersey in september a couple of months after the loss in the gold cup final this time, Berhalter wasn't pragmatic. He stayed committed to his possession-based ideals, instructing the US to attempt to build out of the back at all costs. Those costs were pretty heavy. The US was turned over several times in dangerous positions against Mexico and ended up losing 3-0. Altuna on the far side, held himself two to 3-0. After the match, the fan base and media members us included I think Paul we're pretty upset it was a dreadful performance but Burhalter he kind of had a different idea
4: i see where the narrative is going now right it's why are we playing the way we're playing we don't have, that's the first question paul you were there that
3: night what did greg say how did that not match the overall vibe for basically everybody else
0: Well, i remember what stood out was the first two questions of the press conference played out and burhalter seemed to pick up on a theme
4: the second thing is, we don't have the players to do it. Right? That's what all you guys are thinking. And to me, it's about developing players. You know, when you think about a guy like Weston McKinney, it's a perfect opportunity for him to play at a high level under, against a very good team and work on these things. And, and it's the same for the whole group. When you know, when we think about Serginho Dest playing at this level, his first cap, I'm, I'm so proud of the guy. Yeah, did he make some mistakes? Yeah, of course. But I can't, I can't be more proud of a guy who goes out and tries and tries to do things and we're we're making progress Uh, you're not you know that's not going to be your narrative right now and i understand that
0: he believed the team was quote making progress and it was an interesting decision to say those words out loud the u.s had just lost to their biggest rival three nothing things did not look pretty it was a tough sell for anyone who had watched that game And when we all stood up and left the room and went down to the mix zone where the players come through to do their interviews, we realized that the players too felt differently. Player after player came through and talked about how frustrated they were with the outing. They vented. There was maybe a little bit of talk about progress, but not much. It was mostly about disappointment. And I remember Christian Pulisic coming out and talking, I think more openly than he had before, just about how frustrating he was. He said... As you can see, we still have a lot to work on. And it was the disconnect between the way the public felt, the way the media felt, the way the players felt, and what Greg Berhalter had talked about that maybe stood out more than anything else about that game. And we spoke to Greg Berhalter about that night and his takeaways looking back in
4: retrospect. I just didn't realize how deep the wounds were. That we can play a friendly game. We can do a lot of good things in this friendly game. And, you know, after the game, because we lost it, people are going to be outraged, like outraged. And I just underestimated that because in club soccer, it's different. You know, you can play a game and you can try things and you can lose and you move on to the next game. But in the national team, for some reason, because, you know, we didn't qualify and now people are like, shoot, we're back. We're even worse than we were before. You know, now we're losing 3 nothing at home to Mexico. This is the end for us. And to be fair, I was less concerned about the media, a lot less concerned about guys like you. (laughs) Now, I was a lot less concerned about the media than I was the team because I was was at a point where I think, okay, I'm going to lose these guys here. They're going to stop believing in what we're doing because they're getting killed also you know so eventually they're going to stop trying stuff and stop putting themselves out there because you know they're getting exposed and and I felt bad about that I really did
3: paul there's a lot
4: to unpack in that quote looking back I still can't believe
3: that he didn't really get it that he didn't understand the scope of the pain like he said how deep the wounds were you know we talked about the failure to qualify for 2018 in a previous episode. And that just changed everything for this U.S. team. And Greg Burhalter, he played in World Cups. He played a bunch of times for the U.S. He understands the system. He's, he came up through it. He's lived it. He's in it now. And the fact that he didn't get okay, yeah, it's a friendly. The result doesn't mean anything. But this is your biggest rival, Mexico, to come out and get smashed at home. With the context of everything that had gone on in the previous two years, everyone was spiraling, man, and, and
0: I, I still am stunned that he didn't really get that at that time. Well, Sam, I think there was a little bit of learning happening in that there might have been a belief that 2019 and taking over as the coach allowed a, a sort of reset that what happened in the past happened in the past that uh, this was the the start of a new journey, and that just wasn't the case. You could not let go of 2017 in Cuba until. You qualified for the World Cup. And we saw that play out over these next four and a half years. And I think this game was the first real moment that Greg Berhalter understood truly that there pretty much wasn't going to be anything he could do to move on from what happened in Trinidad until they got to Qatar. And that certainly bad results were going to feel even worse, let alone that good results weren't going to be enough. I think that was an important moment for Greg Berhalter because it changed the way he thought about this national team, not really about how they played, but about how he needed to approach the job. And and he actually got a really important lesson in the ensuing months that would kind of combine that idea of his approach changing, coordinate that with how the team played on the field as well. Yeah. And that was a tough
3: lesson because as bad as everything was in that night against Mexico and New Jersey, it got worse a month later. And looking back, we can say that was kind of bottom for this team. The U.S. traveled up to Canada for a Nations League group stage match in Toronto. Once more, they got thoroughly embarrassed. They lost 2-0 to fall to Canada for the first time in decades. The U.S. once more made mistakes out of the back. Christian Pulisic came off in what I would describe as an emotional huff early in the second half. And Canada absolutely out-competed the Americans in basically every single facet of that game. I was there at BMO Fields in Toronto for that one. And it was just stark. Canada wanted it so badly, and the US didn't really seem like they were ever in the match.
4: Canada was kicking the hell out of us. I remember that we, you know, we had were had a number of chances, a number of half chances, a number of stuff that was, you know, that we our final pass wasn't good enough and, and stuff like that. We had a one-on-one early in the second half that, that Christian unfortunately missed. We also gave the ball away sometimes in that game, but the the biggest lesson from that game was just what type of level of co- compete are we going to need to bring to each and every game? Because soccer is one thing, right? Like you, we could have missed the same chances and and you know not made the one on one and and all that, but we just weren't competing well enough. And and that's what we realized in that game, and that was another learning moment for us as a group.
3: It wasn't just a learning moment. That together with the Mexico match the month prior would end up as a turning
4: point for the U.S. I've always said we learn the most, you know, when we're under pressure from failure, from adversity, that's when you really learn a lot. More on that coming up after this word from our sponsors.
3: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more.
3: The 3-0 loss against Mexico didn't come in an official competition, but the defeat in Canada had real meaning for the U.S. It put them behind the eight ball in the CONCACAF Nations League. One month after the defeat in Toronto, the U.S. welcomed Canada to Orlando for a return matchup. The Americans had to win in order to have a chance to qualify for the Nations League Final Four. I was down in Florida for that game. Ahead of the match, the narrative focused a lot on intensity. Berhalter isn't a very outwardly emotional guy. That's changed a little bit in the ensuing years as he's shown a little bit more personality on the sideline. But at that point in his USMNT tenure, he had sort of a professorial vibe. John Herdman, Canada's head coach, was the complete opposite. I remember his pregame press conference in Orlando and thinking that I wanted to run through a wall for that guy. Burhalter, in contrast, was way more measured. Because of that difference, I remember wondering before the game if the U.S. would once again fail to come out with the proper intensity in this must-win matchup. The Americans put those concerns to rest almost immediately, though. They scored in the second minute, took a 3-0 lead into halftime, and registered a 4-1 win that ultimately helped them qualify for the Nations League Final
4: Four. Sardes, scores again, that'll settle it, and revenge is served cold by Greg Berhalter's side. The US always has, has these games where you just, like, it's like, I call it uber intensity. You come out with, like, this amazing type of intensity and you just blow the team out of the water. That was, like, one of those games. Now, Sam, the level of intensity wasn't
0: the only thing that changed in that game. After nearly a year of trying to play a possession-heavy style and build out of the back, Berhalter switched his tactics in that match. The U.S. pressed higher and harder, played more vertically and direct, and by and large looked far more comfortable than they had for most of 2019. It was a change that many of us thought was going to happen eventually just based on the personnel of this team and the players that were emerging as important and key members of the U.S. MNT.
2: Honestly, it was a better understanding of our player pool and who we have and what the strengths are of this group.
0: For Zimmerman and others in that game, that win marked some much needed recognition from Berhalter about what system of play best fit the pool as it emerged.
2: And I think that's where we started to look at us maybe pressing higher up the field, being able to get in behind the back line more with runs in behind and the verticality and all those things. I think we realized like we have such an athletic and fast and energetic team that we can actually do a lot of damage pressing higher up the field, getting guys in behind rather than maybe doing as much building out and systematic play through the middle of the field. After spending the end of 2017
0: and all of 2018 in purgatory, And then most of 2019 trying to find themselves, the U.S. finally looked like it had something to build on. Then 2020 rolled around, and we all know what happened next. The pandemic basically washed out the entire year for sports and for the U.S. MNT as well. The team only played four games. Only two involved the European-based stars. It was a lost year at a time when new players were only just beginning to emerge. The next real test wouldn't come for the U.S. until June of 2021, just a few months before the beginning of World Cup qualifying. The Americans headed to Denver to contest the Nations League Final Four. They slogged through a clogged-up performance against Honduras in the semifinal, advancing thanks to a late goal from substitute Jordan Pifak. The final against Mexico, in stark contrast, was wide open.
3: The U.S. went down early, but clawed back twice to tie the game up two to two and force extra time. Where Pulisic converted a penalty kick to give the Americans a dramatic 3 2 victory.
4: Pulisic! Barrison in the upper 90!
3: The team that wasn't mentally ready to win the 2019 Gold Cup final had matured to the point where it could not only survive a tense title match against Mexico, but actually thrive in adverse conditions. Paul, neither of us were actually at that game. This was the one match, I think, in this whole cycle, the most important one that, that we missed. But I think it was pretty instructive and pretty formative for the development of this team.
0: There's no doubt. I think that game against Mexico was critical in a few ways. First of all, it showed that this team was capable of winning a trophy, which was an important mental step for a young group, many of whom hadn't been involved in tournaments where the U.S. had won. But I think the intensity of the game, the back and forth nature, it was just a really fun and entertaining match. And throughout it, the U.S. was able to throw these counter punches at Mexico. And it really felt, even in a game that was so back and forth, that the U.S. was very much the better team, or at least was right there with Mexico, and it was a moment of positivity that hadn't existed around this U.S. team for some time. It was something new. It was a stressful, stressful game. They went down very
3: early. Zach Steffen, the goalkeeper, had to come out injured. His backup at the time, Ethan Horvath, ended up saving a penalty an extra time of that game. There were all these dramatic twists and turns. And the U.S. stayed pretty level throughout, relied on some of their biggest players. Pulisic McKenney was big in that match. He scored a goal as well. And it ultimately got that victory. And I think that was such a, it was such a feel good launching point. And that really only continued that summer in the gold cup, which began a month later, Berhalter called up a B team, but they fought their way to the final where again, they met Mexico. It was more of a first choice, Mexico squad, Tata Martino, their manager, he called in a lot of their A team players and the U S survived. They shut them down pretty well, kept a zero in the final and eventually got a goal off of a set piece in extra time to win one nothing in Las Vegas. That team wasn't very glamorous for the Americans, but a few players who will play huge roles in Qatar for the U.S., including goalkeeper Matt Turner, the likely starter, emerged over the course of that competition as legitimate options for the top version of the national team. In
4: 2019, the Gold Cup final, we didn't have that belief. We got that belief with this game in... Um in the Nations League because the guys all of a sudden said, okay, we can do this. And then we doubled down on it in in the Gold Cup final, you know, winning with that group against Mexico also. And it really set a nice tone moving into qualifying. Sam, not
0: that there wasn't a lot left to learn. I mean, the U.S. entered qualifying in September, talking about taking nine points from their matches at El Salvador, at home against Canada, and on the road in Honduras. That turned out to be far, far too bold. (laughs) and maybe a bit naive from a team that was filled with players who had never played in CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers. The trip to El Salvador for the opener was a wake-up call to the realities of playing on the road in Central America. There was an enormous crowd at the Estadio Cuscatlan, and it threw the US off their game in a ragged, scoreless draw in San Salvador.
4: I've always said, we learn the most you know, when we're under under pressure when we're you know from failure from adversity that's when you really learn a lot we i think we learned that we are overconfident i think we the players learn the the nature of these games how competitive these games are that you just because it's el salvador who's you know 65th in the world or 75th in the world when you go down there and play it's a nightmare it's tough
0: i wasn't there i was stuck in a hotel room in nashville due to a close contact of covid but you got on the plane you were in el salvador and i think it was your favorite night of qualifying despite the result yeah i mean in terms of the atmosphere it was unmatched
3: so to give a little bit of background el salvador hadn't been in the final round of qualifying in about 10 years so this is the biggest game they were playing in 10 years it was supposed to be a limited capacity crowd everyone had to be vaccinated in order to get in i remember the lines to the stadium being super long wrapping around the fence. And you go in, and we, we were taking a bus, the media members from our hotel, to Estadio Cuscatlan, which is kind of this hulking thing. It's tucked between like some of these mountains in a valley right in the middle of the city. You pull through the bus into the stadium grounds. You're essentially like in a concourse almost on the bus. And the whole bus is just surrounded by El Salvador fans who were there. No joke, like seven hours before a kickoff. It was remarkable. And they were sort of thinking, oh, this is the U.S. team bus. And so they're surrounding it and pounding on it. And everything was good in nature. But you go in there and it's like, wow, this is something different. I remember the smells from the street food that people were cooking up. Carne asada, pupusas. It was incredible. And you get into the stadium and it was entirely full. Remember, it was supposed to be limited capacity. It was entirely full two hours before the game kicked off. It was unreal. The people were great. There were actually a lot of folks wearing U.S. and El Salvador kind of like homemade split jerseys, like those house divided hats you sometimes see. (laughs) A lot of people had come down from the states for the game to kind of cheer for both teams almost. It was an incredible atmosphere. And you could tell from the moment those U.S. players walked onto the field, they knew that this was something, a, amazing, and b, that they were not ready for.
2: It's probably my favorite atmosphere for qualifying throughout the entire time. Walker Zimmerman talked a little bit about that. I remember leading into the games, like oh, like because of COVID, it's like 50, 60 percent capacity, like it's not going to be a full stadium. And I will never forget walking out up those stairs to go out on the field for warmups. And normally, like I'm pretty locked in. I don't really like it's kind of like white noise in the in the stands for me. And it was so loud and so passionate that I started laughing. I started like that was my gut reaction. like I was like oh my gosh, this is actually like this is actually pretty cool. And I remember the national anthem from that game.
3: Fifty thousand El Salvadorans singing with such pride. It was such. a There was a military plane flyover right before kickoff, and those planes actually continued flying over during the game in the opening minutes, as did fireworks. There were fireworks going off right outside the stadium for the first five minutes of that match. It was unbelievable. Tyler Adams, who was the main guy talking about nine points before that window began, he
1: talked about it too. It was their 12th man um, in that moment. Every single foul that they committed or every single good pass that they played, good touch that they took, the crowd would just erupt as if they had just qualified for, for the World Cup. And you could see how passionate they were about that.
0: The performance wasn't great in El Salvador, but the result was fine. A 0-0 draw and the U.S. probably could have had a one-nothing win. But they escaped with a point and many of those players who had never
1: played a road qualifier had a much, much better idea of what was to come. I remember after the El Salvador game, just thinking to myself, fuck man, like we need to this is gonna be a grind. Like no part about this is gonna be pretty. Like there's never gonna be one of those goals where you're like, wow, that was an amazing goal. It's just that's not what this qualifying process is about. It's not good football. Um, and that's the mentality that we need to have. Road qualifiers are always a little
3: bit ugly for the U.S., but the expectation heading back home for the second match of qualifying was that the Americans would handle Canada in Nashville and travel down to Honduras in a strong position in the CONCACAF octagon. It didn't work out that way. We all got a surprise shortly before the Canada game, when U.S. soccer announced that Weston McKenney had been suspended due to a violation of COVID protocols. It was a shocker. McKenny would later be suspended for the final match of the window in
0: Honduras for the infraction. Sam, I remember just how surprising that moment was. We go to the stadium the night before the game for the final training session, and I have a picture on my phone of Greg Berhalter and Weston McKenney on the field talking to each other. And usually for us, that's a good indication sometimes of who's going to start the game, who Greg Berhalter kind of makes rounds and talks to. It gives a good idea of how late In the process, that decision was made to suspend Weston McKinney. It certainly changed the feeling, the vibe around that game against Canada. And the fallout was made worse by the U.S. men's national team performance. Canada sat pretty deep, invited the Americans forward,
3: daring them to break them down with the ball. And the U.S. couldn't do it. The game ended in a one-one draw with the post-game talk focused on the failure to get all three points and on McKinney's misstep. It was a really emotionally volatile time for the U.S.
0: There wasn't a lot of detail around what happened with Weston McKinney. We would find out way later that he broke COVID protocol had snuck out of the team hotel. And that's what led to the punishment. But U.S. Soccer wasn't talking at the time. And so not only did the players have to answer questions about having just two points through their first two qualifiers, they were also being asked a lot of questions about Weston McKinney. And that led to an important moment for the team to try to gather together and regroup before heading on the road for another road qualifier in CONCACAF.
2: We had like a team meeting and players just kind of it was just players only I think we were talking about how it's we're gonna have to stick together we have to tune out the media we're gonna have to you know don't even pay attention to the outside noise like we know what we have in this group and we know what we're capable of like we got to block that out and. and get it done. And getting it done in a place where the U.S. has historically had
3: a really hard time. Honduras, San Pedro Sula, the U.S. doesn't typically win in that environment. Going down there, the expectation was that the atmosphere in the stadium would be as intense as it was in El Salvador a few days earlier. It didn't quite reach that level, Paul, but it was pretty close, especially in the first half. Berhalter rotated the team heavily for that game, which was the U.S.'s third and eight days. He switched the formation trading his customary 4-3-3 for a 3-4-3 that pushed Adams, maybe the team's best midfielder, out of the midfield and over to wingback. James Sands and Kellen Acosta stepped into the middle. It all went to hell really quickly in the first half. Honduras took a 1-0 lead. The U.S. was poor. At halftime, it felt like things were falling apart. Tension was insanely high. Paul, we were sitting up there in the Press Tribune at the stadium, in a U.S. soccer higher up Spent the first half, or at least a couple moments of the first half, screaming down to the field, yelling at the referee, screaming at the players, like, come on, guys, get it together. All extremely unusual behavior, but a good illustration of, of kind of the emotions of the moment. I remember on Slack, one of our editors was sending us messages instructing us to prepare to write a piece about if Burhalter should be fired if the U.S. was going on to lose. In the locker room, Adams, in particular, was boiling with anger at halftime.
1: Yeah, first half, I was just fuming because I felt like I couldn't have an impact on the game. I was playing, obviously, right back, and I I already wasn't too happy about that. And I remember coming in at halftime, and people were trying to talk to me, say stuff to me, and I just didn't say a word the whole halftime. I just wanted everyone to realize like in this moment how mad I was because like I was just no doubt in my mind, one that we were gonna win the game. I wasn't worried about that. But I just wanted people to realize like this is a fucking wake-up call. We're lucky that it's we have another 45 minutes to play because you know, normally you come in after the game and you're or you're losing or you lost against Honduras and you think, ah, well, we have nine more games left to play in qualifying, whatever. I just wanted people to realize that. This, this could easily determine how qualifying turns out to be. I was already not happy with the two games that we had played in uh, the opening um, window of the, of, the, of the window. And I just came in, I, didn't say, I just didn't say a word to anyone. Didn't look at anyone, was looking at the ground the whole time. Switched my jersey and walked out. I was just fuming.
0: While Adams was in a rage, Burhalter remained calm. Sam, you spoke to goalkeeper Matt Turner about what the atmosphere was like in that locker room. The air conditioning was blasting. It was really, really cold in there because it was so hot in in Honduras. And it created this weird environment that was so stark from where the players had just been playing. And when Greg Berhalter walked in, he stayed even keeled. He said, look, we're switching back to a 4-3-3 formation. And things are going to go our way in the second half. Here he is talking about that halftime.
4: When you're working with a young group, your back's against the wall. It's one nothing. You know, like you start picturing what they can be picturing. Right. So any type of nervousness by me, any type of I think turning on them by me, you know, wouldn't have set the right tone for what we're looking for the second half. What I needed to give them at that moment was confidence. That's what I need to give him. And you're not gonna give people confidence by screaming at him. So it was it was pretty clear what needed to be done. The changes worked.
3: The U.S. came out firing in the second half, equalizing in the 48th minute. They then took the lead 25 minutes later and added two late goals to leave San Pedro Sulo with a four to one win. Young striker Ricardo Pepe was the star, recording a goal in two assists
1: in his first ever cap. The second half was a completely different team, completely revived, you saw Everyone take their game to the level that it needed to be taken to. Of course, you know Pepe had a big impact in that game, and obviously him him showing up in that moment showed his quality and what he was about. But um, I was happy that that we we showed up in that second half. That was a, a really important turning point for us in qualifying.
0: The second half was exactly that for the U.S. It was a turning point in the qualifying campaign. Everyone could stay a little bit more calm with five points through the first window. Going into October, Ricardo Pepe stayed hot. He scored both goals in a 2-0 win at home against Jamaica and Austin, Texas. And even though the U.S. was poor on the road in a 1-0 loss to Panama, they responded with a really important 2-1 home win against Costa Rica in Columbus, Ohio, to close the window. After near panic in September, Sam, following the first six games of Qualifying, the US was in pretty good shape.
3: From a points perspective, everything was pretty steady. I can't remember exactly where they were in the standings, but it was comfortable and it set the table for what was going to be a huge November because that first match, it was only a two match window instead of three, like all of the other ones were in the qualifying. But that first match was against Mexico in Cincinnati. The US had beaten them twice over the summer, but this was a different beast. It's qualifying and paul we didn't really know how it was going to go but they came out and they looked better than maybe they ever have even still
0: in the berhalter era what do you remember from that game i just remember thinking that it was the best soccer that the u.s had played under greg berhalter they never felt out of control of the game it wasn't even like the previous finals against mexico where they were back and forth affairs both teams trading transition moments and really entertaining but kind of a coin flip feeling this game felt like the U.S. was in charge.
4: McKinney. And again, McKinney! Dos a zero.
0: They outcompeted Mexico. They dominated in the duels. They were physically all over them. Weston McKinney was fantastic. And the U.S. got a deserved 2-0 win. Dos a cero. It was a third straight win for the U.S.
3: against Mexico. And it moved them into an even better position in the CONCACAF standings. They closed the November window with a 1-1 draw at Jamaica. It wasn't ideal, but a decent result. And then they moved to January. There was some manufactured adversity that they created for themselves, scheduling matches in January and later in February in Columbus, Ohio, and St. Paul, Minnesota. The game in Minnesota in particular was... Absolutely freezing, frigid conditions. The US
0: men are taking on Honduras at Allianz Field, and our Norman Seawright is there live all bundled up. What an incredible, strange
2: night for a soccer game, Norman. They've left hand warmers all over the stadium because the wind chill is going to have this well below zero. Well,
0: Sam, you went outside for a while in the first half, and I remember you turned around at me, looking at me through the press box glass, showing me the icicles that were forming in your mustache and beard after (laughs) just a few minutes of being outside. Eyelashes too, I think, yeah. Yeah, it it wasn't just a cold game. It was levels beyond that. And multiple Honduras players went in at halftime of the first half and never came back out. They refused to come back out to the field because of how cold it was.
3: Reportedly suffering from hypothermia, dangerous conditions. We're laughing about it now, but it was an absurd choice by Berhalter and U.S. soccer to play those games where they played them. It didn't hurt them, though, on the field. They won 1-0 against El Salvador in the first match of the window in Columbus. They then went up to Canada, another cold game, lost 2-0, and Canada really controlled that match, and the U.S. was not in it hardly at all, but came back and dominated against a Honduras team that was basically out of the race already. They didn't want to be there in those conditions, and why would they? But again, put together a six-point window, won both of their games at home, and headed into the final window of qualifying
0: in a solid place to book a trip to Qatar. They went into that window in a really solid place, Sam, but you couldn't feel comfortable. The U.S. had to play at Mexico. They were home against a Panama team that was still very much alive and fighting for something, and then they had to go to Costa Rica, a place where they've never won in World Cup qualifying. These were not gimme games. And there was a lot of speculation going into that last window about how to approach the Mexico game. Usually coaches pretend that they don't hear what we in the media are talking about. Greg Berhalter addressed that pretty directly in the lead up to that game, saying that He saw those comments and that the staff had discussed them. What was the best way to approach that Mexico game? And it just showed that there was still a lot up in the air going into that window. The U.S. was in a solid place in the standings, but they weren't qualified yet. And if we had learned anything from four years before, it's that you couldn't count on things going right for you, no matter where you were playing or who you were playing against. Yeah, you had to take care of business
3: yourself. And to that point, Burhalter used the first choice lineup in that match at Estadio Azteca to start that window. And it was a much different game than the previous three against Mexico, where those were pretty fast-paced, pretty open, not really like a lot of soccer or a lot of tactics, if we're being honest, just physical. We're going to get in here and fight really hard, and this game's going to be played in open, fast pace. This one was pretty controlled. Mexico, actually, Paul, at points in the game anyway, sort of was like, hey, you guys, Americans, have the ball. Try and break us down. We're going to look to maybe counter you when you lose it. It ended up 0-0. The U.S. had an incredible chance to win the game late on that Jordan Pifak missed pretty badly. But that turned out to be a super important result. I remember sitting up way up in in the heights of that stadium. Felt like we were a mile above the field. And looking over at Ernie Stewart, the U.S. soccer sporting director, and Brian McBride, the former U.S. national team star, who's now the U.S. MNT GM. And seeing their reaction at the final whistle, they wrapped in a very intense embrace. They were like, okay, The job isn't done yet, but this was a massive hurdle we just cleared.
0: Yeah, what it meant was that the U.S. was still in control of their destiny and that if they took care of business at home against Panama, they were in a pretty solid place to qualify for the World Cup. And it's funny because it felt very similar to four years before. Here I was getting on a plane, going to Orlando, to watch the US play against Panama in the penultimate qualifier of a World Cup window with an opportunity to all but wrap up a berth in the World Cup. And just like that night, four years prior, four and a half years prior, the US demolished Panama. It was a 5-1 win. It was Christian Pulisic's best game for the US in some time. He scored a hat trick. The crowd was into it again. And afterwards, The celebrations were on. In fact, the U.S. accidentally unveiled a a banner saying that they had qualified for Qatar because if results had gone a certain way, they would have. They had to quickly re-roll that back up and and put out a thank you to the fans. But we left Central Florida that night or the next day to go to Costa Rica knowing that the U.S. was essentially in. Even a loss in Costa Rica would qualify them for the World Cup. And after this long, long journey had, had, had passed, It was the first time that I think everyone around this team could kind of take a deep breath and understand that, yeah, you're probably going back
2: to the World Cup. We were never fully safe till, you know, the last window, obviously, with points and clenching in that scenario. But I think, you know, it was important for us to, to do well in... The February games, the, the cold win against Honduras was an important game for us to make sure we won that convincingly. And then to come back and have that win against Panama in such a, a good fashion, that was literally the first time we could probably like relax. It was tighter than we all probably thought going into it, but at the same time it built a lot of character that we needed and we will need to, to rely on as we head into to the World Cup.
3: The US ended up losing 2-0 in the finale at Costa Rica, but it didn't matter. All they had to do was not lose by six or more goals. They finished third behind Canada and Mexico and qualified directly to Qatar. Paul, we were down there in San Jose at Estadio Nacional in Costa Rica after that match. And it was kind of an interesting vibe because on the one hand, this burden had been lifted, but on the other, they had just lost this game. And some of the players were like dealing with the conflicting emotions of that. What do you remember from that scene?
0: Well, I remember saying to you, hey, let's make sure we keep our eyes on Christian Pulisic when the final whistle sounds because we wanted to write how different that night looked and his reaction looked from that famous photo in Trinidad where he's covering his face and crying into his jersey, except for the final whistle sounded and Christian Pulisic slowly walked onto the field with a towel covering his head. Very sadly, you know, he was upset that they lost to nothing. And so we kind of looked at each other like okay no one no one is celebrating. The US walked very slowly out they acknowledged the traveling fans Love and they guys turned celebrated. and not really though it was pretty Relaxed. It was pretty calm. And we kind of looked at each other like, "Okay, this celebration has got to kick off at some point. And I remember being in the tunnel or outside by the the loading dock waiting for players to come out into the mix zone. And I think it was Tyler Adams who told us that it wasn't until he got the guys in the hallway that he started shaking people, being like, hey, we're going to the World Cup. And, you know, that's when the celebration started to kick off. And here's DeAndre Yedlin talking about just that.
2: Once we got in the locker room, you see everybody smiling and, you know, you know the beer there and everything like that. The goggles, it kind of just hit you, and is is for me especially is a huge relief. Uh, you know, obviously hate talking about 2018, so I, I knew like you know from that I would have to talk about it a lot less, which is which is great. Um, and then obviously just for for the fans, for for the federation, you know, to be able to you know there, there's hope again for Yenlin and Pulisic who were
3: both in Cuba four years prior. That night in San Jose was sort of a redemption, but it also represented a real bookend for the U.S. men's program. Since that night in Trinidad, USMNT operated in the shadow of the failure to qualify for 2018. Now, finally, they could talk about the 2022 World Cup and the start of an era that they and the fans hope will be bigger and
0: brighter than any before. Coming up on the next episode of From Cuba to Qatar, we'll examine just how important this era of US soccer can be by trying to answer a question that we're likely to hear often during the World Cup. Is this a golden generation of the US men's national team? As of right now,
2: yeah, I think this is this is the golden generation and it's and it's looking really bright for the future.
0: The producer of From Kuva to Qatar Remaking the U.S. Men's National Team Is Michael Zimmerman The executive producers Are John Hayes And Mike Smeltz The creators of the series Are Paul Tenorio And Sam Stasekel Special thanks to Chris Kramrani For behind the scenes Bonus episodes Become a subscriber Of The Athletic Or become a member of the athletics audio plus subscription service on apple Podcasts, and for much more about the u.s men's national
1: team and the rest of the teams at the world cup this year keep it right here on the athletic soccer show